Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Your name? Samuel. Samuel. Welcome. Now we're going to know everybody's name, so we'll start. Uh, I'm Don. Robin. Doug. Marty. Snake. <laughs> Martin. Steve. mentioning I do I am a clinical psychologist and uh, I do a lot of teaching these days I also supervise therapists at the counseling centers of both uh, JFK and ITP ITP is the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto where I also teach um, maybe I'll just give you a very brief history of how I came in contact with Wilbur's work when, after I finished uh, my undergraduate studies in Canada where I'm from I was on a track to be an attorney, and before doing that, I decided I wanted to travel. I'd done some after high school in North Africa and Europe, and this time I wanted to take a trip around the world, and decided to fly to Indonesia, where I began, and it was for me at that time a pretty hedonistic journey. I had my guitar, I was playing music in little bars and partying as much as I could, and um, had occasion in Thailand one evening to encounter a Buddhist who first explained the Dharma to me, which was a very pivotal moment in my life. I felt that for the first time I had really heard some sense of the truth uh, in a profound way and changed all my plans so that I could go to a one-month Dharma course at a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in northern Nepal a couple of months later. And after doing that uh, course, which confirmed for me more than ever the hopes I had after initially hearing about the Dharma from this man I had met, 
I stayed for some more months at this monastery, um, seriously considered shaving my head and doing the full thing, but toward the end of that time I encountered some other Westerners in the monastery who were telling me about different forms, not only of Buddhism, but of uh, various Hinduism uh, practices, and I decided to take a trip around the subcontinent where um, I got involved with various Vipassana teachers. And from what I understand, from what Clint tells me, there are a variety of different Buddhist ad- adaptations here that those of you are involved with. Okay, good. Quite a variety. Quite a variety. Okay. And that was what I had um, the opportunity to experience in India. Uh, all kinds of Theravadan, Mahayana, and Vajrayana teachers uh, I was lucky enough to spend some time with. And, of course, what I began realizing was, as I would listen to these respective teachers, most of them seemed to believe or imagine that their approach, understandably enough, was the way. And I was left with trying to make some sense out of what kind of dharma seems to represent either a higher truth or a truth that's more pertinent to myself. And not only Buddhism, but different other forms of uh, esoteric mysticism were also making this claim. And I didn't resolve that. I came back to Canada, quickly came down to America to live. Um, At the time, in the 70s, there wasn't very much going on in my very provincial part of eastern Canada. And so I came to California, where things were already gelling quite nicely, with lots of Dharma schools operating here, and decided that instead of becoming an attorney, I wanted to be a psychologist. It seemed like that would be the best route to study this Dharma that I had become so interested in. Indeed, somebody had said that Buddhism has a variety of forms. Most grossly, it's a religion, more subtly, a philosophy, perhaps even more profoundly a psychology, but ultimately a way of life is what defines Buddhism. And that made a lot of sense to me. So I wanted to study it as a psychology, since a way of life didn't seem to offer anything uh, in terms of a career at that time. So I went to a place called Naropa Institute. Has anybody ever heard of that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a yes. <laughs> and uh, that was under the tutelage at the time Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche was the uh, president of the school and was very involved. Um, I was lucky enough as a Canadian to get a job as a bartender for a lot of the Buddhist catering companies there. And so I had opportunities to serve Rinpoche a lot of martinis. Um, and had a wonderful experience in the Naropa um, contemplative psychology program where the emphasis was on immersing yourself experientially in the Dharma. The instructors there were encouraged to push everybody to come up against themselves as much as possible, so we all had to discover and become intimate with our own respective neurotic styles and come to make friends with them. That was the whole idea of it, and that was very valuable. It was around that time that I encountered Ken Wilber's work and was immediately attracted to it because he was then attempting in his initial thrusts to integrate all of these different forms of dharma that I was attempting to understand. And he wasn't only attempting to integrate the different schools of Buddhism, but also, well, which which very much talk to the higher levels of consciousness. There's a lot of distinctions that are made 
you know, there's the ten boobies of the Bodhisattva and all the rest of it, and the Madhramudra, uh, Madhramika that I was interested in, but not much was being addressed with the lower levels of consciousness. And Wilbur was somebody who combined esoteric Buddhism and Hinduism with uh, not only psychological schools, but he incorporated sociology, anthropology, just about everything. And for me, that was very attractive because I wanted to see how everything fit, and he very uh, generously and conveniently did just that. Now, that being said, one of the biggest critiques of Wilbur is that he is a hierarchist. He rank orders things as he understands their relative worth, you might even say, where they fit in terms of depth of understanding. And this gets him in a lot of hot water, and maybe I'm sure a little later we'll have a discussion about some of these things. There are a lot of people have a lot of issues with Ken Wilbur, and I'll, I'll touch on some of these in a few moments. Um, but the first thing I think it's important to discuss about Ken Wilbur in introducing his work is to talk about his levels of consciousness. He begins by talking... Well, he goes to what's <laughs> called either the Great Chain of Being or the Perennial Philosophy... This is, as he describes it, something that has been described by just about all of the wisdom traditions throughout history, that there is indeed a hierarchy of consciousness as it develops. And this occurs both uh, ontogenetically as well as phylogenetically. In other words, in the development of the individual on the one hand and how that corresponds with the development of the species in an evolutionary sense. Um, the beginning stage, as he describes it, is the physiosphere, the sensory motor, matter itself, inanimate, ultimately, with the human being, though, um, the neonate, the infant, the earliest stages of life, where there is a fusion and enmeshment with the mother, as well as the entire world. There isn't any sense of where the body stops and the other begins, where the blanket begins, where anything begins. We all know in our contact and exposure to young children that there isn't a well-developed sense of other at all. So there's a fusion and an enmeshment. And this lasts up until the first few months of life. Around the fourth month of life, there begins to be distinctions occurring for the infant where they are able to distinguish between chewing on the blanket and chewing on their thumb. You know, they don't have teeth yet, but they can tell the difference. There's some sensation a little bit. And this Wilbur calls the emotional, the beginning of the emotional sexual life, um, where feeling comes into the picture, feeling of oneself. Wilbur also associates these different levels of consciousness with different worldviews. The earliest, again, phylogenetically being the archaic, uh, back in our prehistory, when we were just coming into this form that we now embody as Homo sapiens, there wasn't much beyond a kind of instinctive and primitive impulse set in terms of life. Um, one way to think of it, this conscious development, is of, of the skandhas. People familiar with the skandhas at all? A little bit with Buddhism? It begins with form. This is a Buddhist conception of the levels of development. Form develops into feeling, perception, conception, and then consciousness itself. So this is the early phase. This is form. 
developing into the emotional sexual, which is feeling. And this is anywhere from the fifth or sixth month up until the second year of life, where the individual is individuated from the mother, from the environment altogether, has a clearer sense of where him and her begins. And at the latter end of this, um, really makes statements that are clearly suggesting that he or she is an individual, usually by no, I won't do that. And we all know about the terrible twos. Um, it's, it's, uh, with all of these shifts that go on as well, it's important to remember, as Wilbur describes it, that these are fulcrums of development. And by a fulcrum, he means a transitional period or stage. And it begins with an enmeshment, a fusion of the individual with this new level of adaptation so that identification is occurring at a new level. This then has to be let go of a little bit. And we all know this about our own development. We have to, as soon as we embody a certain stage, life comes along and gives us lessons to keep pushing us forward, and we have to disidentify or differentiate ourselves from that which we've just perhaps consolidated. And once we differentiate, this allows us then to have experiences that move us to the next level, which we have to reintegrate again. So there's always, as Wilbur describes it, a transcendence of the previous level, and associated with that is an inclusion of that level, as it's disidentified with, but the functional capacities of it are maintained and retained as they're brought into a higher level of reorganization. Is this generally making sense to people? Okay. Okay, and after the emotional sexual level, then with everything associated with feeling, there's the beginnings of, and there had been previously too, around the sixth or seventh month of life, images begin, symbols that represent images as classes of symbols begin occurring for the individual. And at the upper level of this pre operational stage, and Wilbur borrows a lot from Piaget, the famous French uh, cognitive clinician. Um, conceptions occur where the child is beginning to think concretely about things and give things names and be able to uh, elaborate on them more. After this, Wilbur describes the rational level, the beginning stages of the rational um, in children, usually you know, seven, eight years old. And the early stage, concrete operations, represents the ability to represent things, to have correspondence between the intrapsychic mind and the world out there, to represent things internally and to be able to talk about them in those ways. In other words, to be able to operate on things internally. Um, at each of these stages, of course, there are possibilities of ruptures and derailments things that don't allow development to occur smoothly. And when this occurs at any given level, and this is one of the geniuses of Wilbur, uh, there is a, a certain type or style of pathology that occurs that is more or less amenable to a certain or different style of therapy. One of the things that, if you were a psychologist, you'd be contending with is all of the different schools of psychology that suggest their way is the way. Again, not unlike Buddhism. Um, for those of you who are... I was just 
what came to mind was the saying by Joseph Goldstein when talking about the yanas of Buddhism. People familiar with the Hinayana, the Mahayana, and the Vajrayana? The lesser, the greater, and the diamond vehicles. And when Goldstein was asked about this, well, what about the lesser vehicle and the greater vehicle? He said something to the effect of, it really doesn't matter in the end. All vehicles will be towed away at owner's expense. <laughs> and it's so true. Uh, um, everything has to be uh, disidentified with, ultimately, let go of and reassumed at a higher level. So our attaching onto anything becomes problematic. And this is what Wilbur talked about in terms of the different schools of psychotherapy, that they all are partially true. But to be singularly and universally applied indiscriminately creates problems because they might not be the best fit for whatever the condition is. So at the earliest level, um, where psychosis can be the case, the best kind of treatment a lot of the times is at that matter level of physical intervention. With what we have now with our major tranquilizers, again with degrees of therapy, these are wonderful for people, that they really do allow people who have uh, psychotic or schizophrenic conditions to not have to suffer from those things nearly so much in a florid sense. At the feeling emotional level, where there has been ruptures and interruptions of development, um, the structure building techniques of self-psychology and object relations have come to be seen as the most effective at the next level, where images and symbols and concepts arise, where people are able to take roles and assume different um, dispositions relative to things, there's this continual expansion. There's, of course, the assumption of roles and the getting caught in them. So if the roles are not um, integrated fully, there's going to be degrees of repression as we try to adapt to societal dictates, expectations of whatever group we're in. And these are best treated by what are called uncovering techniques. Um, and there is a whole slew of these in psychology. Um, anyway, moving up the level, the rational, as it matures, becomes capable of different perspectives. Initially, with young children, there is an egocentric disposition where even if you were to ask a child of seven or eight years old who's sitting across from you, and let's say you have a little ball that's red on one side and blue on the other, and the child knows this, they can look at it, give it to them, they can see its two colors. If you sit it between you and the red is facing the child and the blue is facing you and they're looking at the red even though you're facing the blue and you ask them what they see they'll see red and if you ask them what you'll see they'll still say red it's around that stage that they start being able to make that distinction though so taking on the role of other more is what happens and we try to take on too many roles when that occurs um, and that gets us into trouble as things develop into a more mature rational level, uh, early adolescence, um, we begin to be able to take on multiple roles and take multiple perspectives. And this is the stage that Wilbur calls uh, integral aperspectival, which is 
also phylogenetically, if you think of the rational as being characteristic of modernity, which began three or four centuries ago, the Enlightenment paradigm of the representational mode, science, empiricism, and all the rest of it, vision logic epitomizes the mature, most mature forms of the rational mind and the recent mood in this century of taking different perspectives on modernism and seeing it as one limited view, empiricism being one view that they usually try to deconstruct. Wilbur sticks up for this a lot, again, always seeing partial truths, and he has a lot of issues with postmodern criticisms. He celebrates the world-centric nature of vision logic, network logic, as he calls it, where no perspective is privileged more than any other. But he has issues when he believes that this kind of perception doesn't anchor itself at all in reality. Postmodernism is the province of interpretation, of hermeneutics, of meaning, and Wilbur insists that these meanings do have to be anchored in a physical reality. In other words, all the dimensions have to be represented in his schema. After the most mature forms of rationalism, or the ego, which again, Wilbur supports mightily. Just a word about ego, since this is a big thing for Buddhists all the time. Uh, It usually gets a a short shrift or a bad name in a lot of Buddhist circles. And that's usually because what Buddhism defines the ego as is the separate self-sense, which indeed does need to be transcended. But there are all of the functional and representational capacities of the ego that Wilbur describes as being very important. In other words, all of our organizing abilities, our synthesizing capacities, everything that makes us able to negotiate and navigate our way through daily life are egoic functional abilities that are important to maintain. Likewise, the conventions that are associated with the way we internally represent ourselves as an I, an independently existing person, don't need to be jettisoned or thrown out, according to Wilbur. They're very important conventions, but only that. They don't need to be reified or solidified, but it's important to maintain them, otherwise things get a little loose for the self, and it's important to make that distinction. So after the degrees of the rational, Wilbur Wilbur then describes... He usually breaks it down into three or four levels of the transpersonal domains, the first one being the psychic. The psychic is usually associated with what he calls nature mysticism or the ability of the individual to have experiences of merging or integration with the physical environment. I think probably a lot of you have had experiences where, whether they've been meditative or drug-induced or an epiphany, um, walking along a mountain path sometime, where you feel yourself at one with your environment. And that is a peak experience, a certain state that anybody is able to access that allows for a kind of perception and feeling of oneness, in a way, transcending to degrees this separate self-sense. Beyond that, Wilbur describes the subtle realm, where the realm of the archetypes of higher intuitions and illuminations uh, 
are experienced so that there is some insight into primal forms and figures. This in Mahayana Vajrayana Buddhism is the domain of the Yidam, of the yogi, yoginis that are meditated on, that are attempted to be embodied in tantric practice. And finally, the causal domain is what Wilbur describes as that of the witness, that of the self that is at one with the environment, nature, ecologically sound, being where there is only perception as the self, of the self. And he sometimes now makes the last distinction of the non-dual that the Majumika would speak of, where there is not this, not that, only this, only that. Everything gets very paradoxical. And Wilbur's description of this as being one taste, what is, no separation of any kind. Pretty hard to imagine for most of us. Uh, We might have little moments of it, but as an ongoing disposition, this is what Buddhism calls the transition from bhava to sahaj samadhi. So that was just a quick recapitulation of Wilbur's levels and stages. And he's since elaborated on that and developed what he has called the four quadrants, where he slices reality into four segments. The upper left, I don't know where that's going to be to you guys, is uh, everything I just talked about, the development of the self, the individual self. Um, The upper right is the levels of reality on the physical level, beginning with subatomic particles, moving into atoms and molecules and cells and so forth, into um, the most complex parts of the brain, which is the most complex um, unit of anything in in the known universe that we found so far. Uh, In the lower levels, these are the collective domains. The upper is the individual, both internal and external. The lower, on the left-hand side, coming down from consciousness, is what he calls the cultural domains. And these are all the different ways that humans configure themselves in terms of customs, interpersonal relations, values, degrees of meaning, in other words. The lower right are the corresponding institutional agencies that associate with the cultures. In other words, government buildings, uh, all different kinds of organizations that cultures uh, allow themselves to be structured by and as. And this has been a nice advance in Wilbur's work. He's gone through what's called Wilbur 1, Wilbur 2, Wilbur 3, Wilbur 4, and uh, he's always enlarging upon himself, which I find very refreshing because a lot of times theorists will get onto something and then spend a lifetime trying to justify it and bolster it and defend against any... um, critiques of it. Wilbur is involved in ongoing discussions with uh, all manner of individuals who criticize his work, and he allows himself to learn from that um, and to develop newer and newer models, which, as he says, just transcend and include his earlier work. Most of what he originally put forward, he doesn't think needs to be dismantled, but simply enlarged upon. Um, Is everybody kind of with me so far? Okay. Um, 
Maybe I'll ask you, Clint. What, what other things do you think might be interesting? Uh, the pre-trans fallacy. Pre-trans fallacy. Um, Wilbur talks, and this is one of the things that characterized Wilbur's movement from Wilbur one to Wilbur two. He was struggling mightily with trying to understand if reality is whole. How do we access this wholeness? We are as these separated egos, alienated from a full sense of who we are. So how do we access that? What's been contemporaneous in our most recent decades, in the postmodern mood, has been a, oftentimes, a romantic notion of a return to an earlier state of wholeness, which you see with the infant. There is that lack of pain and suffering that is associated with independence. That is the downside to it. With recognition of a separate self-sense, there is a lot of slings and arrows that we have to go through in contending with that. So a lot of people have suggested that we need to return to this innocent and wholesome state of the child where there aren't the problems that come with um, the scripts of individuality. Wilbur, in looking at this, said, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. When I look at a child, sure, I see the delight, the happiness, the freedom, the lack of concern with um, the kind of constraints that we all suffer from. But at the same time, he didn't have to look long to see, but this child doesn't really have a good sense of other at all. There isn't any compassion. There isn't any empathy there, really. There's just this I, me, mine, and that may be very integrated. There's not a lot of problem with that for the child. But there really isn't the ability to take the role of other very much. Um, To say nothing of when the child is refused whatever it wants, all kinds of tantrums and fits and all the rest occur, which a lot of the romantic thinkers didn't seem to give much stock to. So Wilbur said, no, like the perennial philosophy, the great chain of being, things have to move forward. And he said, okay, this rational sense that seems to be the problem with this ego, we're trying to get wholeness, this transpersonal thing. I'm noticing that a lot of philosophers in this age and psychologists are wanting to go back instead of forward. And as he described it, a lot of people were wanting to elevate this infant childlike position to a transpersonal disposition. He talked about this pre-personal or pre-rational associating with transpersonal, transrational to be a fallacy. And one of his biggest Um, areas of dispute has been making this distinction which very much riles up a lot of other uh, psycho-spiritual theoreticians but he says it is essential to make this distinction that because it appears to be transpersonal this kind of unity here it is a big mistake to mistake it with the transpersonal where it's been where all of the qualities along the path have been differentiated separated from, disidentified with, but then reintegrated, whereas at the young level, it's never happened. There's an a-dualism. But does he go on to say, or or to remark on the uh, almost mirror quality of these first stages of development leading to individuation, 
Uh, the next stage is one in which you grant individuation to others and you begin to see their world as being as alive as your own. <coughs> and then the next stage up, as he's calling up, is a, a recapitulation of the previous stage of uh, emotional element becoming a, an integration of tantric principle and then the, the, the stage of oneness of the, of the unity with the, the cosmos is a recapitulation of the first stage but in, in, a, in a reverse way you're folding back that development that took place that created this ego which is in Buddhism the cause of suffering the ego can, can't be made of a, a beautiful rational ego that doesn't need to be worked on anymore it, it does need to be dismantled and uh, but done so without losing touch with uh, the consciousness that has always been even in the child and I would disagree with the characterization of the child I mean, you know I, uh, <coughs> my cousin just having had it given birth to some kind of bodhisattva child. You know, I mean, there, if you can get into the space of the child, that's a, that's a, a place of oneness. And uh, it's the same place that I feel in the presence of a great teacher. And there's no distinction. But if there, you're right, she has not gone through these stages of development yet. But her full development will be to develop into a human being. And then, you know, peel away slowly that development. I think this is maybe just my theory. I don't know. But <laughs> no, well, it's nice to hear because this is what I was saying. It's and it, it's there's some subtle distinctions, but this raises issues for people. This this very thing that you're talking about, and there's I think so many different ways of describing it. It sounds like you're identifying the potential in this person that's there to be cultivated. Well, I would say that it's there fully formed. It becomes hidden through developmental stages in which we're developing developing into something else for other purposes, societal purposes. It can be gotten back to by going ahead. I mean, he's right in saying you don't retreat. You don't. It's not a romantic view of this. You don't. You continually you develop further, getting yourself away from those. Developments which were extra, and returning to uh, well, I mean, it's it's a kind of language, and there's mm-hmm. it, it appears humorous to uh, look at it one way or the other if you're mm-hmm. if you if you view these words as well. What what I'm I'm really enjoying about this is you're able to communicate and express. Um, pretty much the issue that Wilbur has, and who knows if Wilbur's right, um, I, I tend to subscribe to it, but you're representing the more romantic view. And what Clint can tell you is, in our Ken Wilbur discussion group, not only is it a very common view, um, I mean, it's a very common view, it's the dominant view in psycho-spiritual circles, the one that you represent. Well, I'm not sure, that I know the, I know the one you're talking about, and I, I think it's as as you think it is, but I think that there's a... <laughs> I mean, so I don't know that I'm communicating as well. I think the things it's that are... It's a distinction, which is the development 
Oh, no, it's fine. I, I'm glad. I, in fact, I really want to encourage questions. I think dialogue is more important about all of this than me talking along about something. And just, is it related to that? Yeah. Okay. Because I'm afraid, I'm embarrassed. I understood this gentleman better than I understood you. Okay. But having understood him better, I think I'm now in a good place to hear you present again your contrasting position so that I can hear what it is which is not that. Okay. One of the things that he was mentioning a moment ago is he said it was fully formed and things just need to be taken away. And in some sense, if you look at that, perhaps it's true. But the idea that it's fully formed, if we want to use that language, yes, it might be if we want to conceptualize it in that sense. But there's no way you're going to take it away at that point in time. It has to wait. So we can use that language if we want to. And I think in an absolute sense, if we think of their only being, ultimately, consciousness itself, of course, anything, all of this, is absolutely mature and fully developed. But in a relative sense, it doesn't make a lot of sense to speak of it in those terms. Ultimately, it's true. Absolutely, there is no separation. There's no distinction between anything and anything else. But relatively, in the developmental or evolutionary path, there has to be an accumulation of, of experiences that allow for feeling to form, for images to arise, for conceptions to develop out of that, for conceptions to develop out of that. These are all working through processes of experiences being navigated and negotiated by the self-sense, without which they won't occur. So we might say that a child has this capacity fully, and they do in some sense, but in any relative sense, it doesn't mean very much. And it's not so much a return to that state because it's never been differentiated in all the ways that I'm trying to talk about, where the self has to differentiate from only matter, from only the biological, pranic, elan vital nature of, of energy into the various forms of mental representations. But I knew this was going to be a hot one. <laughs> it helps me in, in trying to, uh, to, to, to go through this forest that, you, that we're in, in a sense, talking about, to, uh, to think of the physical domain as being very important. So uh, to me, the ego is a ma the management tool, or mm -hmm. the, the ego is not something to be gotten rid of at all. It's the, it's the thing that's going to stop, going to help me not know enough to get out of the way of a truck coming mm -hmm. down. Uh, and it's, it, it, uh, it's, uh, and a lot of our thoughts and feelings, as we've discovered, you know, are connected into uh, the, uh, the, the biology of the development of our brain. You know, uh, the, uh, what's his name's work on the amygdala? Uh, uh, the guy, Daniel Goleman's work. Dan Goleman. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, that just, just talking about I shouldn't have said that, because <laughs> that makes things confusing. But uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's the concept that, that, uh, that there is a physical, real, there's a, there's, that we're implanted in a physical world, uh, and that, that we've historically grown in very certain ways, you know, in order to survive, or not maybe in order to survive, and have survived because of it. And so obviously the child, I also have just acquired a grandchild, you know, so, and I look at it, well, its brain isn't even all there yet, uh, so she can't be whole in one sense. You know, she's not doesn't doesn't look at the light 
that's all she sees, you know. Mm -hmm. Although now, she's 10 weeks old, she seems to know faces or so. I don't know what she knows. She's very smart. (laughs) 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 Except she doesn't know her grandpa. Uh, I'm just, I don't know if that, I don't know how to to, to say it more, but I think it's a very important distinction to make, you know, that that this is there. And it's not a question of being divided, you know, it's not a question of it taking us away. And it's certainly something we can't release or get rid of. (laughs) So, uh, and yet it confuses the argument so much as in, in terms of the, uh, of, uh, in, the, in terms of our analysis of Eastern Philly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to say some things about yourself. Okay. Yeah. Um, my, my perhaps generalized impression of the whole thing too is that it's um, it's kind of too not only too egocentric but too anthropocentric. Um, and that I think that there's also a tendency amongst um, psychologists in general to um, generalize anything that's not like dualistic and western rational based as being romantic mm-hmm. um, as being this having this kind of naivete um, that you know as a, a person who's like studied a lot of philosophy, I was a philosophy major and such, and, and um, I just find that I really do have a problem with hierarchies, anything that represents like a, a hierarchical structure, and um, and um, that's exactly what I'm trying to get away from. And I think that a lot of psychology based on any sort of the like what has been the traditional um, Western rational-based thing like is all totally self and anthropocentric. It's the kind of compassion that you that that I, I enjoyed that part of it that would eventually come to a person. Um, but it's actually it's not it's not the kind of compassion, at least as far as I see it. That's just like you feel like you want to do something nice for something. It goes further than that. It's that this person is responsible for my existence, as I am for that person's, as I am, or this host is responsible for my, it's like, it's phenomenological. It's not like just this simple niceness, let's be nice to each other sort of compassion. It's that I exist because this thing grants my existence. Well, what, I mean, just before, I was trying to respond to a couple of these things. Um, one of the distinctions Wilbur tries to make a lot, because hierarchy has a bad name and leaves a bad taste in our mouth for a lot of good reasons. He, again, makes another distinction, though, like the pre-trans. He says, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That, in truth, hierarchies define and constitute reality at every level. And they do. I mean, however much we might have issues with them. Wilbur says our issues should be with dominator hierarchies. And those are a problem. Absolutely. And we see them all around us. You look at things like uh, 
the Nazis or the KKK, you know, they have serious dominator hierarchies. And there have been all through history where one group has elevated itself to a certain level or one person and wanted to intentionally dominate others in a very uncompassionate sense. That, Wilbur distinguishes, though, from benign hierarchies where you have grandfathers and fathers and mothers who are clearly in a hierarchical position over the child. They darn well better be, too, because if that child has an equal voice in the family and has chocolate for you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day and can go play in the traffic if it wants to because it has an equal voice, you're going to have a problem. There have to be hierarchical structures. Buddhism talks about it at length. This has been one of the issues with Buddhism's incorporation into our very postmodern and egalitarian West is, yikes, you know, what do we do with all this? The important distinction is to make between a dominator and a natural or benign hierarchy, which happens all through nature, but it's a kind of unitive and functional force hierarchically where nothing is dominating anything else, that there's a cooperation and a collaboration between components and elements in the system. This is general systems theory essentially. So before we go there, I'll come back to you. Well, let's, let's make sure we get everybody. Get everybody? Okay, then. Well, I think the problem is that I suspect Kimmelberg had a dominating ideology. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see Kimmelberg as extremely Hegelian. I, I don't see much that Kimmelberg has written that Hegel didn't write first. Um, he's very dialectic, this idea of transcendence as a form of inclusion. Mm-hmm. You started building this metaphor of childhood mm-hmm. and adulthood, and if you're going to impose that on history and societies and childhood, you're going to end up with societies that are in the position of the child. And so this is what Hegel did. He looked at the Jews and he saw them as being a sort of lower, a lower um, kind of religious development, and not quite as spiritual, not quite as rational, not quite as free. And it had terrible consequences. And I see, I. Um, I see it as sort of benign, but I see that there's great uh, potential in Wilbur for developing into the dominant ideology. Well, that's a good point, and those are a lot of the criticisms that have been leveled against Wilbur. And Wilbur does address those things, though, too. He also addresses, for example, uh, what used to be the Romantics epitome of development, they would go back to ancient Greece, which is a lot of what we associate with the earliest levels of logocentrism and anthropocentrism and all the rest of it. Wilbur rightly says if they were that integrated in those days, why were a third of the people slaves? Why weren't women liberated, etc., etc., etc.? He very much um, critiques certainly parts of Hegel, although he, you know, he's very much to some degree an Hegelian. He, he believes that uh, that idealist notion was a really good attempt at integrating uh, the I, the we, and the it of morals and art and science, which is something we're still trying to do. Um, I think that Wilbur is very sensitive and tolerant to pretty much any kind of life form or force or group, but he doesn't give all equal value. He doesn't, and that's what gets him in trouble in this relatively multicultural world as well. He feels that as long as a group, though, is benign in its intention and isn't trying to harm something else, then great. He would look at, for example, the process of clitoridectomy in West Africa with that being 
the value of that group as problematic. He would look at cannibalism as problematic. He would say that all groups are not equal. He would say that in response to usually the postmodern multiculturalist claim that how can you make distinctions about groups? He usually will ask them right back, well, what about the Nazis? And usually the response is, well, um, I don't know. In other words, we have preferred groups that we want to have everything equal with, but most people, if we really take a hard look at it, are able to make qualitative distinctions, even though that goes against our philosophy in a way. In other words, I think our philosophy is in need of a little upgrading. We don't want to be thought of as intolerant, nor should we be, needlessly, but we all have to make distinctions, is what Wilbur says. And this is what gets him into trouble. Uh, we have, I think, just time for maybe two more. It's time. Uh, okay. We have an alternative. If you would be willing to stay, some might want to stay and talk with you a little bit more. Or we, do that, to, sure. we have two more, and then we have to break. So, Officially, okay. Uh, I, I first of all I have to confess I only know Kim Wilbur's name be, before this, but uh, so I'm only responding to what you said. It, my reaction to it is that it seems and feels antithetical to Buddhism rather than consistent with it. Uh, and I say this totally uh, as an academic uh, myself, but it seems to me an attempt to impose a um, rational analytical framework upon the aspects of existence which we have not been able to do, and at least in initial Buddhism, as I know it, which may be different than some of the any later accretions, uh, that's what for me has has um, what word to use that I resonate with. Uh, somewhat in contrast, Judaism, Judaism comes up again to uh, my birth religion, which was Judaism, which again, in some other ways, struck me as sterile. Uh, in its dependence, in, in a different dependence on un, unexamined ritual, and on the other side, uh, in an extreme focus on rational legalism, uh, which contrasts with mystical Kabbalah, which I don't know much about either. And so that, that's why I feel uncomfortable with it, and on a philosophical basis, it seems to me, again, an attempt to... Uh, to make clear, rational, and certain, uh, and create an immense superstructure of rational analysis based upon ultimately sensory perceptions which are uncertain. And the last, the last thought, and I'll just end with one more. The last thought is that it, it strikes me, in, in contrast, it strikes me what has happened to physics, and in only only one area, for example, in which every time the physicists find an ultimate particle, it turns out to have littler particles, or its limit grows, goes, um, and so every flea has little littler fleas upon them to bite them, and so I infinitum. <laughs> in response, to that, I'm in complete agreement with everything you're saying. I'm not sure where, if I was misrepresenting this as being an analytical and rational and logical thing, only saying instead, though, that 
um, as was suggested earlier, in terms of facilities to get through traffic and do everything that we do that require the rational mind, everything that we enjoy here, all these lights, all the rest of it that are products of it, that Wilbur doesn't want to discriminate against that, like is so often done, as being merely rational or only rational and therefore problematic. He situates it and locates it within a larger system and sees its relative worth, but it too ultimately becomes deprivileged and marginalized in the face of consciousness itself. Very Perhaps I was I was curious to know if Wilbur ever commented on Carl Jung's position that uh, Westerners really need to go into Western roots to find their spirituality, whether it's Jewish mysticism or Christianity or Celtic. And that the individual and collective psyche of a Westerner is very different than an Easterner. And that when a Westerner uh, tries to impose Eastern spirituality, there's a greater development, because of the greater development of ego and shadow and persona in the Westerner, that it's actually more problematic. Um, I haven't heard anybody, and I was wondering if Wilbur has addressed this at all. That is a very good question. Um, the idea being that the deep structures of our psyche resonate with our generally Judeo-Christian or whatever it is that we were imbued with in our early life that when we enter the transpersonal domains and mystical spheres, we have to resonate somehow with those early constructs. And this was put forward by Jung very, very strongly as he came to embrace the um, mysticism of the East, but had difficulties with not being able to resonate with their uh, cosmologies and symbologies that are associated with this. And he said, they, we have to get somehow find a way, him coming from the Christian tradition, to make it a more uh, transpersonal religion, esoteric religion and so forth. Um, Wilbur thinks that we're on the verge of creating something entirely new around this millennial time, that we are world-centric now, that we have to transcend the mythic religions, which are largely, or usually how they are exoterically practiced in the West with Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and so forth. We have to find some way, if we can't mystify them more completely, and he's not sure that's the right way to do it, that there needs to be some new thing evolving here, and he's not sure what it is yet. He's imagining that there may be, who knows what's going to develop, but there need to be new structures to come along. But he, he too, like Jung, doesn't think that we can just grasp onto the Eastern forms of Buddhism, although he is very much a Buddhist, uh, more than anything else. But he, he would agree with Jung in that we have to do some reconfiguring here. <laughs> so, uh, thank you very much. And there's people who are probably going to pour hot tea on me because they want they want to raise their hand. Well, thank you very very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers, so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.